Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, we're going to be reading verses 28 and 29, the last two verses in that chapter. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may, not, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Amen. Dears, you may be seated. We are continuing in our First John series after a one-week hiatus. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll be tackling the first three verses of chapter 3, which are really amazing and exciting. Two weeks from today, while Leslie and I take our last vacation week of 2022, we hope to have Don, John Cherney here preaching the gospel to you, and you'll have a fellowship meal that day, Lord willing, as well. But for now, let's feast ourselves on Jesus, shall we? In prayer, as we will in sacrament next Sunday, and in the Word in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. He is the Word of God, through whom you created the entire universe. He is the wisdom of God. He is the power and righteousness of God. We thank you that he has been given to us, and we have everything good in him. Now feed us him who is the bread of life, the water and wine of life, that we might be refreshed and nourished in the person of the Son of God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the topic of abiding in Christ is a favorite Johannine or Apostle John theme or subject, and the Holy Spirit promoted this throughout all of his writings, whether it's the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. You see this concept of abiding in Christ. Perhaps no more is this celebrated than in the famous words that we read earlier from John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So we can see how absolutely key and critical the issue of abiding in Christ is. It's not ancillary to the Christian life, it's absolutely at the heart of it. The doctrine and practice is requisite to living in Christ or having any life at all because Jesus Christ himself is life. He is the personification of life. And all life on earth or anywhere else in the created realm goes through him. He is the source of all life, all knowledge, all wisdom, all truth. Everything is brokered through this great God-man who is at the center of everything the Lord Jesus Christ himself, including Christian living. Therefore, let's make it our gospel goal this Sabbath day to abide in Christ by grace through faith. With this in mind, we're going to look at just two verses, 28 and 29 of First John chapter 2, as Elder Wayne mentioned, the last two verses of the chapter. The title, Abiding in Christ, the doctrine... There is nothing more important than abiding in the triune Godhead. And I think this statement is literally true. It certainly is with regard to all human beings who wished by God's grace to live at the height of what it means to be a being created in God's image, and even more than that, recreated Lord's Day to Lord's Day as members of the church into 
the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We get to the Godhead, the triune deity, through the God-man, as we will see now. There's nothing more important than abiding in the triune Godhead. First, we possess this abiding through Christ's human nature. This is an interesting, captivating, and remarkable doctrine. As Romans chapter 5 teaches us, and it's indicated on your outline there, We all died in the first Adam. When Adam sinned in the garden, he thrust his entire progeny, all the race of humanity, into death and spiritual decline of a a nature that we could never get out. We were literally dead at that moment. All of us are conceived dead people in rebellion against God. And he died at that very moment. And we died in him. But Romans 5 goes on to teach that there is a last Adam, his name is Jesus Christ, and the elect redeemed church lives in him. So we go from a transfer of a federal head who thrust us into death, Adam, to a new federal head of the church, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, who now launches us into life eternal and supernal and blessed and ever expanding. But it had to be a human being who would accomplish this for us. It's interesting, dears, do you realize that even God himself, just with his own divine beings of the three persons who are one essence, one nature, we're going to study this next Sunday in a wonderful text that we're going to look at, even God could not have redeemed fallen human beings created in his image without a human involved in it. And that is why the great mystery occurred that the second person of the Trinity would become a human being. He would remain God and deity, totally with the Father and with all the rights and glories and equal with him in wonder and praise and adoration in every other way, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, but one of them had to become a human being. This is why we often quote 1 Timothy 2.5, and I'll do it again. There is one God and one mediator between God and men or humans. The man, notice that, Paul says the man the human being of Christ Jesus. So properly speaking, and theologically accurately speaking, the church's regenerated saints are initially gathered to God through the humanity of the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. But this great blessing of adoption doesn't stop there, as we'll find out here in a little while. We possess this abiding through Christ's human nature which ushers us into the embraces of the Holy Trinity. Intriguingly, the Son of God and his humanity also wondrously brings the church saints to himself, the Son of God and his divinity, as he is the eternally begotten second person of the Holy Trinity. But as well, of course, through the Son's humanity, he delivers the elect church to the other two persons of the Holy Trinity, to the whole the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when we are said by the New Testament to be one with Christ and through him with the other members of the Holy Trinity, 
This oneness is our being cradled in the heart of God as we are in Christ's humanity. So next Sunday when we come to the table and we're lifted into heaven and we're embraced by God at his very heart, it's because we're in the humanity of Christ who became a member of his own church, as we are too. He's the head, we're the members. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. The loving and tender hugs and kisses we receive from God come through all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Hence, to abide in Christ, in reality, is to abide in all three personages of that blessed Holy Trinity. And that's why we use the language we have here on the outline. But again, and very importantly, there is no getting to the three persons of the Trinity except through the divine human person of the second person of the blessed Trinity. There's nothing more important than abiding in the triune Godhead. So this idea of abiding in Christ is really key. Uh, It can't be emphasized enough. Let's now take note of some practical advantages of abiding in Christ from verses 28 and 29. So today's scripture lesson, which finishes off the long and lovely second chapter of 1 John, is extremely applicable, useful, and hands-on, to be sure. But it's all based in the grand, glorious, mystical, and profoundly theological predicate of our abiding in Christ. First, uh, John tells us in John 15 that those branches in him that die are people that were baptized into him and into his church but have no life. They are cut off and thrown into the fire. That's what that text is talking about. It's covenant. And here we are told to abide in Christ. And we do that by what we're doing right here today. Being in his house, growing in the soil of his grace, hearing the joyful word of God to to us. God is giving us here a sweet example of where his high and holy truths help us here where we need them so much. And I remind you again that Most of the Bible is written for us in the church here on earth, the church militant, where we really need it. In heaven, there'll be no sin, no presence of sin, no sense of sin. It'll all be gone. It'll be a glorious situation. But here, we need a lot of help. So, as Christ's sincere church, let us now relish some practical advantages of abiding in Christ. First, It confirms for us our adoption by God, verse 28a. And now, little children, abide in him. You know, the children that get adopted get adoption papers. And the believing churchman's adoption papers are our baptismal certificates. I don't know if you still have yours. I found mine. And it's really a great thing to have, and I'd encourage you. Uh, If your parents had you baptized as a child, I hope that they got one. I hope you have it. These baptismal certificates confirm that we have been sacramentally united to Christ. And this sacramental seal and sign is absolutized or finalized through regeneration by the Holy Spirit, which sometimes precedes baptism and sometimes comes after baptism. But it's always accompanied in the end with faithfulness in the covenant of the church, which is manifest in being in the house of the Lord, hearing Jesus Christ preach to us Lord's Day to Lord's Day. 
So it makes perfectly good sense that the Apostle John would exhort his fellow parishioners, his quote, little children, as he calls them, to abide in him, with the closest referent being the second person Christ, as we'll find out from the balance of verse 28, just the context of it. Now, last week, if you were here in the worship service, we sang in our prayer hymn the song, Abide With Me. Today, as it were, God says, abide in him, Christ, in complete harmony with the previously handled verse 24 of chapter 2, which synthesized the preached gospel abiding in us so that we would abide in Christ. So we have to hear that gospel consistently, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, so that we will remain in Christ and not be separated from him, which is nothing but death. Never fear, though, dear saints of the true church. In fact, all regenerated Christians do indeed abide in Christ always. But it is manifest in covenant faithfulness. And if that's lacking, then there's no assurance. And this is true even though in our practical experiences we do sin. Of course we do. We sin because we're still sinners. The church is a place for sinner saints. It's a place where sinners should come too. And by God's grace, we become sinner saints, which are being more and more conformed into the image of Christ, and we have to come back to him in a new and refreshed way every Lord's Day and throughout the week, as we did earlier today, in confession and absolution. So I'm given today some practical advantages of abiding in Christ. It confirms for us our adoption by God, and it encourages us to be joyfully faithful to God, verse 28b so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You know, the Lord wants you and me to be confident Christians, bold, assured, confident, triumphant, conquering, humble Christians. That's the picture of the Bible. All those things go together. Some of them seem a little almost in opposition, but they're not. They all coalesce into what God would have us be. He doesn't want us to be tenuous Christians wondering, am I in a good state with God or not? As long as we can hear the gospel and receive it with faith in a true and faithful church, that's great, all the evidence you need that you are in Christ Jesus. Now, if that isn't the case, it's all the evidence you need that you aren't and that there is still a sin problem blocking the uh, the line to God. But the bottom line here is who would want to be found in a conscious act of sin when Jesus Christ returns in his final advent? You know, the Bible talks about Christ's comings, and I've taught you this numerous times. There are several of them. There's the Incarnation. We celebrate the Christmas. There is Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came upon the church in a special way. That was the Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son. There is an Acts 2 example also of where Jesus visits every regenerated soul. When God revives the church in, in time and space, that's sort of a, an act of Christ's coming. When God judges the world, starting 1 Peter 4, 17a, with the church, the household of God, starting there, that is a type of coming. And then, of course, there is the final advent, the, the great day of judgment, which is preceded by the general resurrection of all bodies of all human beings, the damned and the redeemed. 
that stand before the Christ to receive his sentence. Those on the left sent to perdition, those on the right welcomed into glory. Well done, thou good and faithful servants. So this is something that we should sometimes think about. Would would we want, no one who's sane wants to get caught doing anything wrong, either by other human beings, right? It's embarrassing, and it's shameful, and it's right, it's a good thing. Shame has a place. But how much worse is it when this is with regard to God? And yet, really, there's let's face it, every time we sin, we're actually doing this, aren't we? Now, we kind of pretend, forget, and we think that's not happening, but indeed, the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God knows all things and is in every place, and no one can hide from him. Everything is open to his absolute sovereign purview and vision. What Christian would want to be ashamed in the presence of Jesus at any time? No one who really loved him. So, do you know, though, again, that this is possible? And like I say, when we sin, it happens. And before we own it and confess it and repent of it, in truth, we are in what I would call a moderated state of shame. Not the worst kind of shame that David asks God to deliver him from in Psalms 25 and 27 and those Psalms, but in a moderated temporary state of shame. And it's not all bad because we learn from those things, don't we? God can even use our sin to conform us more to Christ. And so this is something that we we learn. And this, though, is one of the many good reasons to keep short accounts of sin. I, I do hope that you do confess your sins on Sunday morning, but I also hope that all all the time throughout the week you do the same thing. What we do here is sort of starting that process and it becomes a template for the rest of the week as we immediately confess our sins when we fall into them and the Holy Spirit shows us that. There is nothing worse for a truly regenerated person to be in a state of tension because of yet unrepented of iniquity as per David in Psalm 32, verse 4. I referenced this earlier in the Christian education, but in that psalm, he is in a tortured state, knowing that he had sinned and he hadn't dealt with it, and then he does. He speaks it, he confesses it, he is forgiven, he's renewed in the grace of the gospel that would come in Jesus Christ, the one that he was worshiping. And there's nothing better, here's the converse of it, there's, there's nothing one, more wonderful than the heavenly liberty of being released from the grip of sin through the living knowledge that Jesus Christ's blood has once again cleansed it all away. And I reference for you 1 John 1, 7 through 9. Now the unregenerate people never experience either one of these conditions, the horrible state or the blessed state. And that's because they're dead in trespasses and sins, as per Ephesians 2.1, just like we were before our regenerations. And they have no sense of life, who is the person of Jesus Christ himself, as we're told in John 5.40. So some practical advantages of abiding in Christ. It confirms for us our adoption by God. It encourages us to be joyfully faithful to God. And finally, it clarifies our faith, our doctrine, and our perspectives. Verse 29. 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this verse seems almost at first glance to come out of the blue. What's, what's the Apostle John teaching us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He is informing us that those Christian churchmen who know Jesus Christ by sovereign and miraculous grace all also know intuitively that he is perfectly righteous. They also know that all of our righteousness is alien. It's given to us by God. He, he gives us, he imputes to us legally the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is our righteousness, but it is not inherent to us. It's a gift of God to us. It's a beautiful thing. But, but what does this righteousness that we're talking about here look like on earth among the true saints of the church? So he says there in that verse, if you know that he, Christ, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So in a world that's totally fouled up and calls good evil and evil good and truth false and false good and has everything completely turned upside down, we need to ask the question, we should anyway, what does righteousness look like down here on the earth among the true saints of the church? So God calls us to to be righteous in Christ and to act righteously as a, a function of who we are. Okay, so... Our being precedes our action, but it's important. Well, this is, again, where a lot of confusion is, especially now. Is righteousness doing things to please the people of the world? This seems to be the religion of the day. Let's please the people of the world, whatever that takes. If it means knocking on their doors and saying, what do you need, what do you want, what do you want a church to look like, we'll, we'll make it that, or if it's like, Okay, you live this way, we'll accept you. It's fine. I'm okay, you're okay. Is that righteousness? Or is doing righteousness pleasing the God of glory, even though that's going to cost and it's going to have a hurt to it? It's not going to be accepted, especially in an upside-down world. Well, there's, you know, the answer is that that righteousness that pleases God is that which pleases him, the God of glory, in doing of righteousness. Now, I do want to hasten to say that will manifest itself in real acts of love towards sinners who need it. Not the false love that's really hate, that just propels people into a lower state of hell, but real love that's willing to tell them the truth, even if they don't want to hear it. But when we do it, we should tell the truth in love, shouldn't we? And with grace. We don't have to worry. We can't save anyone, but we are called upon to love people. And that means telling the truth. Is that easy, though? That's nah, not easy. Uh, all of us by nature in Adam are cowards. We just want to be liked. We just want to get along. We just want people to accept us. We just want people to like us. And that's, that's a trap and a snare, though. And we need to recognize it and oppose it at every turn. Because that's not love. Oh, the world thinks it is, but it's not. 
So the pleasing of God is the doing of righteousness. Now, practically speaking, what does this righteousness look like? Well, I would argue it is reflected in the doctrine of the previous verse 28 in that it abides in Christ. So I believe the true righteousness in the world practiced by real Christians is a function of abiding in Christ. And now we should say, what does that mean as far as practical application goes? Well, what that means is that by faith and covenant, we are joined to Christ, and by God's grace, we keep the covenant perfectly. You know you can do that. Even as sinners, you can keep the covenant perfectly, simply by being that faithful church in the house of the Lord, receiving the gospel, the ministrations of the sacrament, the prayers, all the ministry of the church and your fellow parishioners, That is how you do it. We do it in being faithful in the church, her worship, her day, her ministry, and the world in which she has called us to live. So as the end of verse 29 says, these are the ones who have by God's grace been born of God. You know, it's interesting when you read the New Testament especially, and this would be really helpful for people or somebody to write a book on it or something, It just doesn't tell Christians to do a bunch of things. I mean, really, it doesn't. I mean, just read it sometime. I mean, first of all, keep the context in mind. Most of the people to whom Paul wrote or John wrote or the church in Corinth or Galatia or Ephesians or Philippians or wherever they are, they didn't have time throughout the week to do anything. Most of them were slaves at the behest of some master, had no freedom. All they, all they had was an hour on Sunday morning, very early, to get up and go. And they would go, and if it cost them their life, it cost them their life. Because they understood this was absolute. And they would be fed Christ there by some faithful minister, elders and deacons. They would take at the supper, probably every Sunday, if not most Sundays. Sometimes they'd have a fellowship love feast, which in the old days they kind of combined with the supper. And then the rest of the week they just went in and just had to do what the master said, essentially. I mean, they weren't told to do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. I know we have a lot of time on our hands. I get that. But I just want Christians to do what's necessary, what's absolutely important, and then leave the rest to God. And if we have some extra time, fine. Do it. But do it for the glory of Christ. And beware not to do it for self-adulation, which is sometimes a real problem. So all this helps clarify our faith, our doctrine, and our perspectives because it all focuses us on Jesus. Let's do some more practical application this morning and comprehend why abiding in Christ is the essential ingredient for Christian living. After I did, I thought, yeah, that word essential was really a big deal a while ago. I don't hear much about it these days. But there is something that's really essential, and that's abiding in Christ. And even though this is so simple, so important, and so straightforward, I ask you, why is it that it seems that most Christian people don't get it, and some never do? Some never get it. I think there's reason for that. Probably because they are not believing the true gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, the simple but profound one, and are imbibing a myriad of some false ones, and there are plenty of them out there. 
Let us, on the other hand today, come to better understand and appreciate why abiding in Christ is the essential ingredient for Christian living. First, because there is no life at all in separation from Jesus. That's so important. Please understand that. I mean, I, I have to convince you, I hope I have, and I hope all of you already know this, that all life is found in Christ. Any alienation from Christ, Jesus, is utter death. There's life and there's death and that's it. There's nothing in between. All life is in Christ. All truth is in Christ. Now, truth has a lot of dimensions. Some are very high and lofty, theological, doctrinal, starting with the Trinity, the Church, and on down. There's a lot of other truths down here that we enjoy at academic levels or just recreational ones or whatever, and they're all good, but they're not all as important. There's a priority of truth. So, anything, any religion, any practice, any passion, any zeal, any commitment that is not covenantally tied to the person of Jesus Christ, and I would argue his church too, is thoroughly worthless and nothing other than religious death. You might say, well, if that's the case, why do people do it? Well, there are a lot of reasons they do it. Sometimes it's just to assuage guilt. Sometimes it's to impress other people. Sometimes it's to make themselves feel good. But the principal reason the Apostle John had been calling the church to Christ in chapter 2 all along was he was urging us to abide in the Messiah, to keep abiding in him, to not leave him, not move on to something else. Do you know that there's, there is a shortcut in the search for truth? I was thinking about this this week. Not everybody has to go into a, a great theological study and dialogue and reading of the great theologians. Not everybody's called to do that. Not everybody has the time for that, the interest, or even the ability. But by faith, God will give us all the truth and life we need in the person of Jesus Christ if we'll simply come to him. Now, if we need argumentation to get there, if our minds are still befuddled and we're confused and we need more, that's fine. If it's a sincere search, God will bring us to him. All who seek me, find me, he said. And he will be found by all who earnestly want him. But this shortcut is important. In Christ, we may have all the truth, all the life, all the advantage that we need or want in this world. Now, sometimes people are of a nature, I'm probably more of this, that it's hard for me to accept truths based on authority or what somebody else says. I have to experience it. I have to find it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But perhaps you are able to go and just directly find yourself in Christ. At the end of the day, it all is the same because the searcher and the one who simply takes the shortcut ends up at the same place. Faith in Christ by grace through faith. And that is absolutely essential. It's not like we get there in any other way. But I'm telling you, dears, he is... He is the one. 
He's the truth. He's the way. He is the life. I urge you to enjoy him. From the headquarters of our abiding in Christ, the head of the church of which you are a part, you made then, and I say this to our young people, but older ones too, from that place you may explore all other avenues of truth, whatever it may be, theological, philosophical, empirical, scientific, practical, recreational, economic, financial, you name it, I don't care. You may enjoy it, you probably should, so long as you keep the proper order of those truths, and so long as you tie all truth, whatever you're studying, be it in school or somewhere else, even if you're learning it from complete unbelievers, you tie it to the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ. If you do that, that's fine. In fact, I would say God wants us to explore all of the truth and then tie it all together in Christ. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Why abiding in Christ is the essential ingredient for Christian living because there's no life at all in separation from Jesus, but there is abundant life in our union with him. Now, if the previous point was not wonderful enough, then this one that we have here just piles on the blessings of the person, the ministry, the gospel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I I mentioned in a sermon a while ago, and I still think, you don't hear much about joy anymore, it seems like. I mean, I remember years ago, that was a pretty popular subject in Christian discourse. Uh, A lot of people write books about it and talk about the joy of the Christian life. I don't know, maybe you hear about it. I don't hear much about joy anymore. And, and this is something that we are given in Christ. We're the only ones, the church is the only one that really has this joy. But it's a beautiful thing. Life in Christ is exciting, exhilarating, vibrant, bountiful, and ever-expanding. It's a joyful life. Now, the, when I say that, does that mean... Oh, I'm not going to have any problems, no struggles, no sins, no aches and pains, no trials and difficulties with whoever or whatever. Of course not. I'm not saying that. Does it mean we always put on a happy face and everything's just all hunky-dory? Of course not. But there is a deep well of abiding joy that is had, an abundant life. That reference on your outline there, John 10.10, is Jesus saying, I came to give them life and to give it to them abundantly. Christ didn't come here just to give us little dribbles of of life and joy. He came here to give us lots. We actually have a responsibility to be happy, joyful. How about that? Isn't that a good thing? I think that's a wonderful thing. God doesn't call on you, his church children, to abide in him for no good reason. Gives you plenty of good reasons. The principal one is so that we would love him because love is primary and God is ultimate. He's the first object of our love, the triune God. And this love comes through a remarkable sense of what God has done for us in sending his son to die for our sins and to atone for them. And then to rise from the dead for our justification. That glorious truth, when properly understood and experienced and internalized, will drive and propel joy for a lifetime and through all eternity. 
Abiding in Christ involves a lot of things like suffering, trust, repentance, perseverance, and endurance. But it also involves great and almost ineffable or unspeakable levels of joy that burst the hearts of the redeemed in even more love for God. So with all these blessings in Christ before us, dear saints, on this Sabbath day, let us believe in, trust, love, follow, and gladly obey our triune God in and through the God-man, Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, abiding in Christ is the only way to real and true life. All those who know the one and only God are glad to be found abiding in Christ. Let's do that and pray. Father, help us just to abide in Christ and put away all the, all the other things that we're told that will get us uh, what we want or get us to a certain place or whatever it is and just throw it all away and just abide in Christ as his church and the glory in him. Lord's day to Lord's day and then throughout the week to bear good fruit, fruit of Faith, love, joy, patience, goodness, all those wonderful things. Fruit of evangelism. Bear good fruit for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.